Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. It's been very gratifying to be able to be in one place for a number of years and develop deep, deep relationships with your team and your curators and your head of collections and your CFO and your educators and your head of human resources to think alike and to put forward a program and and an institution that celebrates the work we're doing. That was Brian Ferrizo, an economics major at Bowdoin College. He graduated with an MA in Arts Administration from New York University and an AM in Art History from the University of Chicago. His museum career included stints in Newark, Chicago, Milwaukee, and as director of the Philbrook Museum of Art in Tulsa, Oklahoma, before beginning his tenure in 2006 as director of the Portland Art Museum in Portland, Oregon, among the oldest museums in the nation, founded in 1892. Past president of the Association of Art Museum Directors, he currently chairs the Exhibitions Committee of the American Federation of Arts. Brian, welcome to Artscoping. Thank you, Max. Nice to be here. I'm glad to have you. Tell me, how are you and the family doing? We're doing well, relatively speaking, and I think being in Oregon is unique for us. You know, Oregon has taken a very specific pathway for the pandemic, as well as some of the social unrest you're seeing. So um, it's been a, a moment of reflection on many levels here. Yeah, and that's been in the course of a year since the pandemic descended, which has taken such a toll on countless people, on businesses, and on organizations, including your own. Would you share what your guess is about what's in store in the coming weeks as you monitor the spread of COVID? I just had a staff meeting to this regard. And, uh, you know, I think it comes down to pivoting with the information that you have. And right now, uh, Oregon is in a situation, according to the governor and our county, where we can have up to 50 people per hour in the museum at once. And uh, we're still not opened, however. We feel that we want to see more decrease in the disease, and uh, we would like to see a higher number limit for hourly entrance. And, you know, part of that thinking is, you know, not only our audience, but also the the context in which we're operating here in Portland and in Oregon, where the disease is still pretty rampant. So I think perhaps it could be a, another few weeks, could be four weeks or so, maybe even five. Well, it's been interesting around the country to see how different directors are responding to this and their boards and local health officials. One thing can be said, it's chaotic. The other source of chaos, Brian, I wanted to touch on is that while the sporadic openings of museums when they do has been a source of comfort, there are a lot of controversies roiling today, including a recent spate of interest in deaccessioning artworks, not to buy other art, but to pay the bills. You're a past president of AAMD, and so I want to ask where you stand on this topic and what you think the limits should be on what's been called direct care of collections using the proceeds from sales of art. You know, I've been part of AMD, and thanks to you as well, and partnering with you on a number of conversations and having those conversations. This has been something that's come up for 20 plus years. I believe right now it was appropriate for AMD to um, put a pause on some of the policies they have. I think we're learning a lot about how some institutions are responding to the temporary change in the policy. So it gives us a real understanding of the extremes or maybe how other institutions are not doing anything. Personally, and in our museum, I don't put much weight into uh, thinking about deaccessioning works of art for direct care. I, I think it's a short-term 
response or a short-term mm-hmm. strategy to a longer-term issue. I believe as a director, my team and I need to continue to um, make the case for fundraising, make the case mm-hmm. for sustainability, make the case for our endowments, make the case for why the community should be supporting our museum with their philanthropy. And if we're not making that case, then we need to change our messaging or do things differently. Ultimately, I believe some of these responses to selling art to, let's say, support direct care or operations um, may not have the long-term impact that ultimately our goal is. Our museums need to be here for not just next year, but for 50 to 100 years. That being said, Mm -hmm. Max, I'm sure... Uh, my colleagues could have a, a wonderful counter to that point of view. So direct care, just for our audience, used to mean something like framing or conservation treatment or perhaps the display costs. I think direct care today isn't clearly understood because AAMD hasn't said what it is, leaving it up to the individual museums. So isn't that going to create a hole you can drive a truck through? Absolutely. You know, I think both you and I have looked at the white paper from AAM and we try to work within that framework and we walk away from that discussion not knowing what direct care is. It's an open-ended definition that is really undefined. That being said, I haven't gone through the exercise extensively with my team because again, to the points that I made before that I feel that it may not have the impact, at least here in Portland. I know that in my previous jobs where you know, it wouldn't have the impact ultimately that we need. I think I could argue as I went through this, Max, it's maybe a little bit like a doctor treating a, a situation mm-hmm. where the, the patient is ill, but not mm-hmm. necessarily being a situation where it's about preventive care. I believe it is a slippery slope and having deaccessioning support, administrative costs, operating costs that are somewhat removed from treating the work of art that's damaged is maybe getting too far afield and really, again, changing the entire situation. The reason people are feeling the need to find new ways to pay the bills is they're having trouble paying the bills. But what do they pay the bills for? There's this old museum mantra that you and I started with, which we heard year in, year out, which was museums are there to collect, preserve, and interpret. (laughs) A few years ago, I wrote an essay proposing that we change it to gather, steward, and converse to acknowledge changes in the ethics of collecting, difficulties in caring for works that are made of fugitive media, and the need to listen as well as to interpret, as in lecture. So I'm curious when you're meeting a new lawmaker in Oregon or a new patron whom you're trying to persuade, I don't want to sell art to pay the bills, I want your help. What's the way that you explain the importance of your museum? Max, I remember very well when you presented that topic to our colleagues at AMD, and it was an important presentation. So thank you for posing that suggestion, gather, steward, converse. And I believe it is a good evolution and change to how we think about our museums. What I've been talking about here in Portland and in Oregon is discussing the museum as a, I would say, a three-legged stool. The people, it's an institution about people. We need to be people-centric. At the same time, program. Program's an important part of the stool, and we can talk about what program and how it's defined. And then collections. And so those three parts really define the institution. 
and each part has an equal weight in its importance of holding up the institution and being integral to what we do as an institution. I also was thinking about your word steward because I was talking to my staff about this recently and some of them responded that maybe steward means a little bit too heavy-handed for an institution at this moment that you're in charge and and that perhaps there needs to be a, a different word. And we didn't come up with a different mm-hmm. word, but I, I thought it was a good question. Uh, and and mm-hmm. words, as you know, change through time and meaning. And especially at this moment, does steward imply too much, I'm in charge and overseeing this because I know better? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And particularly younger staff who are, I think, reflexively concerned about the arrogation of authority by institutions. And I guess somebody of my generation would say, I understand the impulse, but somebody has to be in charge or else it is, <laughs> yeah. it is a free for all, but I understand uh, the impulse. Yeah, that's exactly it, Max. I think you described it well, and that's where that impulse was coming from. And, uh, you yeah. know, it's, it, it is interesting. I think as, as leaders, we, we move through this moment of balancing, um, listening with leading. And I think they're, they're intertwined. I've heard the same refrain from other directors about their staff who, in light of Black Lives Matter, are questioning pretty much everything. The origins of institutional authority, the assertion of power by the executive, the board's role, and it's a healthy thing. And as somebody who grew up in the 60s and early 70s, I understand the impulse. I also think that these younger people are eventually going to be in positions of the sort that you occupy, and they may come to see the world as a little more nuanced and challenging than the simple declaration of independence from authority. But time will tell. One of the things I learned on that point, Max, over the last four or five years, is it is a question of building that trust with those voices and those individuals. I have found entering that space and that conversation, trust can be built and that over time I have had um, the next generation, which I admire greatly, um, understand the, the complexities and the and the challenges of, of leading. A few weeks ago, I had John Walsh on the podcast, who, of course, distinguished director emeritus of the Getty, made a very specific point that he thought the staff needed to have a voice of authority. They needed the leader. And it made me think really how much that viewpoint has passed us by. And it's not one that I'm in a position to say much about today other than I'm watching with interest. And your leadership has always been a porous one. You've looked to think about things out loud in ways that others wait for their scripts to arrive. So that I appreciate. Speaking of which, Brian, we've talked over the years about the actual business model of art museums, which I maintain are charitable organizations that often emulate commercial attractions to excess. And if I'm not wrong, according to your last two publicly available tax returns at the museum, you got about 9 to 13% of your net revenue from admissions, which is much higher than the national average. I'm wondering how you and your trustees agree on the appropriate balance between operating as a charity and operating as a business. In other words, are you aligned with your board in the degree to which your time is focused on contributed income versus earned income? You know, Max, this goes back to your important paper, Metrics of Success, that you wrote for art museums. And I I reflected on that paper very early on in my career, and it was very useful. I've been in Portland now for 14 years, and I think the conversation 
around uh, this question of earned income versus uh, contributed income was very much a topic and, and something that was debated and discussed often. Over time, through conversations, through small moves, I mean, again, every little thing we do, I think, adds up to something bigger. In many, many meetings and many discussions, it's really a conversation that doesn't exist anymore here, and I'm very grateful. That being said, we can still do a lot better in building our endowment. That's, that's ultimately the key here. But also what I've found is the board has really understood and embraced this idea of democratizing the donor base. So, mm-hmm. you know, putting behind, you know, this or getting in front of this idea that we just want a lot of people contributing. And, and that's, a, that's an affirmation and a, a, a confirmation of what we're doing as an institution and the community's response to it. So membership, really important. Patrons, uh, people giving annual gifts, um, philanthropy that's unrestricted. Those are the areas where we talk about and really have been emphasizing. And I, I just haven't been involved in the conversation, I'd say, in the last five or six years with regard to this question about net versus donated. I think people just want to support the institution and, and make the pie whole. And uh, we all understand that donated income is ultimately uh, important. And I will say, the nice part of the pandemic is it's highlighted this, Max. I mean, we know this. Mm-hmm. We know that the institutions that will survive, whether it's an art museum and in our community, um, the literary nonprofit, the performing arts group, if their membership base is not strong, they're not going to bridge to the other side. And that's, I think, the one of the, the bright sides of the pandemic. It's shown how important that relationship is with your donors and people who give philanthropically. And speaking of giving, the acquisition of artworks remains at a core. You mentioned it in your tripod of institutional health. Your last annual report shared that over 800 artworks were acquired in one year. And with all the news these days about the restitution of objects to African nations by France, the return of looted material from the Mediterranean and Asia, deaccessioning by multiple museums, and a laser-like focus on community service, especially since George Floyd's murder, all of it raises the question, is adding art to permanent collections less important than it was as a measurement of institutional success in the past? Yes. I think measuring success by the number of objects is not a good metric. I mean, I think it's too narrow. It's too simplistic. So one of the things I've been thinking about is this idea of community and relevance, which which can go in many different directions and in, in, in many defined in many different ways. One of the things that probably the 800 artworks coming into our museum is the result of, because I was reflecting on this question, is I've spent a lot of time really, really investing in our curators, recruiting curators. We have now mm-hmm. nine curators here. When I started, we had three. Um, endowing those positions, getting really um, very highly highly qualified, um, thoughtful community thinking curators, as well as based in, in, in scholarship. And then partnering them with our learning and community partnerships team um, and, and really trying to understand how the collections can be responsive to the community. So 
many of those objects that came in in that year are the re- are the result of sort of those community conversations. A number of photographs came in. The Portland Art Museum has great strength in this area. Photography runs deep into the historical thinking of our community and and sort of the Carlton Watkins coming up here in the 19th century mm-hmm. and taking photographs of the gorge has continued to be an inspiration for the world of photography. So a lot of those objects are photographs. The other one is, you know, a major collection of Japanese uh, works of art, um, a significant collector up in Washington um, partnered with us and, and decided that we were an institution, especially on the Pacific Rim, that could really benefit from um, works of Japanese art. And that's Chini and Mary Coles, who also gave, I think, some works to the Met as well as the Sackler. Mm-hmm. It's great to hear that you've been thinking about acquisitions in such a focused way. In the deep past, it was more of a contest among curators to see what they could pry loose from collections that would simply add to the strength in their various areas. This sounds much more focused. It's been gratifying because I don't think we are under the the microscope, at least with the larger cities, of, of having that pressure. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that in a minute. I, let's start with one other question, which is that you've orchestrated some very important exhibitions over the years, of course, including last year, Hank Willis Thomas, All Things Being Equal. Could you talk a little bit about that show and what exhibitions you're imagining for post-pandemic Oregon? Yes. So that was just a complete joy. And and Max, if you spent time with Hank, he's a, he's just a wonderful artist who who really thinks deeply and, and and really poses important questions, but questions in a way that that really inspire people to do the work of of unpacking the world in which we live and, and all the symbols that we see. So it's been that was just such a incredible project for us. What what's was exciting about that, I'll reflect one other thing. I remember I knew right away I wanted to do the show and my I, I put together my curators actually came to me with the idea and I knew right away that we needed to do this. And they did a remarkable job of, of bringing it to life. But we had over almost a hundred thousand people come to that show, um, which is really quite remarkable for an artist who didn't have name recognition in our state or region. Mm-hmm. And so the result was that, or you know, what made that work was just a lot of a lot of heavy lifting by my staff of really connecting with the community and, and doing a lot of community conversations to to under to help them understand the importance of this show, and then Hank coming out and a number of lectures and discussions and all those things we talk about as museum leaders. We want to connect with the community. That was extremely gratifying, and we're just. Uh, we're just thrilled about the impact it's had and and our future, and it also then laid the groundwork for, you know, the important work we need to do going forward. One show that I'm really excited about is you you may have noticed we lost uh, the great Barry Lopez author uh, mm-hmm. recently, mm-hmm. who is the naturalist, the humanist, um, the one who thinks about the landscape, he thinks about indigenous people, and has written groundbreaking literature on these topics. Uh, Barry and I have been, we're talking before he passed away, as well as with our curator in this area, Julia Dolan and uh, Toby Yurovics, who is working with him. So we're going to be thinking about an exhibition that's going to honor Barry Lopez. A number of artists, including Robert Adams, Laura McPhee, are donating works of art to 
to the museum. Um, there's about 50 to 60 artists donating works in honor of Barry Lopez's uh, important work on uh, the book he wrote, Home Ground, uh, if you're familiar with that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're just we're just thrilled about that. What that what that speaks to for me, Max, and I think for my team is it's about it's about a sense of place here. Uh, I remember when you and I spoke years ago when you came and visited with me, you talked about this strong sense of place and how do we as an institution mine that sense of place? And, and I think that show is, is really exciting for me to do that. Also, I'll say one other thing, you know, we have a remarkable Native American collection and we have a, a new curator in that area, Kathleen Ash Milby, who came to us about a year ago. Very, very thoughtful, uh, reflective curator who, who thinks a lot about connecting the now to the past. So we're going to be spending mm-hmm. a lot of time with our contemporary Native uh, communities or artists and drawing the lines and celebrating this living culture, which is so prominent here in this part of the country. On your homepage, your museum website recognizes and honors the indigenous peoples of the region on whose ancestral lands the museum stands. What does that practically mean? How should museums in general rethink their obligations to pursue social justice on various fronts? I'm so glad you asked that. And that's a, a per, an important first step. It's, it's certainly just a first step. And it's a nod to the significance of us being on these lands. But also, I think it holds us accountable, Max, to, to do the work and to think about history deeper and not just a time frame that's within the last two to three or 400 years. I was involved with a conversation. There's a beautiful park block in front of our museum. And although the museum doesn't own it, people often ask me or us about our opinions on it. And the park blocks are being discussed about a potential renovation or you know, just sort of an investment by the city. Some local folks are talking about the history of the design of the park blocks. But again, the design is probably something I know it was done within the last 100 years, about 100 years ago. And as I entered the conversation and they were asking my opinion about the park blocks and about some of the changes to the 100-year-ago plan, I said, I think we as a community need to think a little bit deeper. And I th- I'm fine with reflecting on the 100-year plan and being respectful of that. But what about the indigenous peoples who occupied these lands before this park was defined and shaped and mm-hmm. and, and put into play? And and how do we as a community recognize that history in a contemporary way and a respectful way and a way that leads us forward rather than just creating these time capsules of space? And I think that's ultimately the question. Um, you know, we, we think about our community in a way that, that Native American art or indigenous art is a living culture, but also a culture that predates sort of settlement. And so those are the types of things that I think come out of that statement being upfront, and it allows us to think more deeply about where we are in this part, in this moment, but also in, in this location. Brian, you mentioned earlier the exhibitions that you have in mind. In the before times, if I may call them that, the staging of eleven or twelve-week exhibitions was a given in museums, like the Sun Rising in the East. Are you thinking differently? about the need for a constant diet of shows or about their length? Yes, absolutely. And Max, I think given the fact that our endowment is not as large as we would want, I also thought very early on in my tenure here 
that, you know, we needed longer shows, different types of shows. Um, so length is certainly something we look at, but I say different type, you know, it is about conversations with the community and community engagement. And what is the way that we can create concepts or themes or, and again, Hank Willis Thomas is a perfect example where they become more porous to the conversations of the moment. So checklists become different. Um, Timeframes become different. Spaces become different. I have no problem with rethinking what was, you know, the permanent collection and locations. And we all know that, and you and I have worked in institutions where there's incredible silos about, well, that's for that discipline and that's for that discipline. I don't, I don't really subscribe to that. I think the institution as a whole needs to be the vessel for ideas, concepts, and community, and it needs to be porous. So ultimately, those shows um, will be uh, responsive and moving forward will will sort of take on that um, perspective. And it's one of the many questions that faces a director in thinking about calendar, budget, and program. And I'm wondering, since you've been in the saddle for long and had a distinguished career in Portland already, how have your attitudes about the appropriate role of a museum director changed since you started in a CEO role in Tulsa in your previous directorship? It needs to be asked all the time. And so I think where I'm different, more humility, certainly in there. I think also more joy. I think I, I've learned that you know even on the tough days, there's uh, brightness on the other side. And so I really start to understand how fortunate I am and how joyful ultimately these jobs are with regard to being a sort of a part of history and preserving or celebrating our shared humanity. So I bring more joy to the job. It's been very gratifying to be able to be in one place for a number of years and develop deep, deep relationships with your team and your curators and your head of collections and your CFO and your educators and your head of human resources to think alike and to put forward a program and in an institution that celebrates the work we're doing. It's a fascinating tension point in how much one can find that informality with your staff and board and community and how much you have to be at sometimes when the pressure is on a little less freewheeling, a little more, unfortunately, the person who is ultimately vested with the responsibility. One other question for you, which is really about where you find yourself. Actually, my son Chase relocated to San Juan Island off of Seattle to be a farmer in the <laughs> pandemic times. And that's what he's doing this year. So I'm getting a glimpse of the joy and beauty of the Pacific Northwest, which offers this incredible mixture of beautiful nature and progressive values. And the pandemic, as you've seen, as I've seen, has led to the abdication of the art world's stubborn capital, New York, for other places. Do you think there's a more permanent disaggregation of the art world's power centers still to come? I do believe that this question is, is moves beyond the museum world, as we both know. It's, it's an economics question. It's a lifestyle question. It's a technology question. And I've been listening to a lot of podcasts by Richard Florida recently about mm -hmm. the moment. And I think Richard lays out some real important data and thinking around the future of cities and the changes that we're going to see. So ultimately, I do believe that yeah, yes, there will be probably uh, more people moving here because of the beauty and what, what's in place. There's certainly challenges as well. I mean, we you've seen some of the social unrest here. 
the racial history of Oregon is certainly of significance and the economics of it all. I can't say with precision that it's going to be completely a blossoming or growing community. But I will say that the soul of our state or our city is strong and that people will be interested in maintaining their roots here or moving here. That being said, I also think the museum is really about regionalism. I, I've thought a lot about this, Max, and I think it goes back to our conversation is, you know, what is it, what's the place you live in? And, and I think there's so much opportunity when you think deeply and critically about the place and the artists or the culture or the humanity of that place. And it's a very rich opportunity. And I say that because I feel that perhaps our field over the last, let's say, 10 to 20 years have thought a lot about globalism, but I, I have not really enjoyed going to museum after museum where I see the same artworks and the same artists <laughs> at the same moment. And so right. um, we know what that looks like. We know what that result or why that has come about. There's many factors in play there. So I think this idea of really leaning into your sense of place into regionalism is really exciting and important mm -hmm. for all of us to think about. I agree. Fewer franchises, more independent bookstores like your incredible Powell's bookstore and the rest of the <laughs> natural wonders of Portland. Brian, yes. thank you for sharing a bit about your plans and reflections. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you, Max, and thanks for inviting me. We've been speaking today with Brian Ferrizo, director of the Portland Art Museum. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.